welcome to series four, episode eight of the Prompted by Nature podcast. Um, so I realised last week that I had done it again. I'd forgotten to give you a little action point, which was something I said I was going to do it every week and I keep forgetting and I'm really sorry. Um, just one of those things, you know. But for this episode, I'm speaking with Sophie Pavel, who I'll talk about in a second. But part of her work is that she works with the Beaver Trust here in the UK. So the action point is to go and have a look at their website and see what they are doing. Why beavers are really important, if you don't already know. And to just get involved in any way you can. And it, you might find that the Beaver Trust and looking at what beavers do leads you nicely onto looking at river health here in the UK um, or even in your own country if you're not in the UK. Um, it's quite a big topic here at the moment because there's a lot of raw sewage dumping, yuck, uh, in rivers and also the sea. Um, it's quite a big thing down here in Brighton because we have both the Ada, which is an estuary and we obviously have the English Channel. So yeah, it's quite a big topic down here. Um, so yeah, that's the action point. That's my suggestion. Go and have a look at Beaver Trust because they are amazing. So on to the episode. So this week I am thrilled to release my conversation with the lovely Sophie Pavel, who is a science communicator, writer and, as I mentioned, part of the Beaver Trust team. Uh, I actually came across Sophie a few years ago on Instagram and I've been wanting to have her on the po podcast for a while so I'm really pleased that we were able to get round to having a chat and talking about all lovely things that she's doing. I love Sophie's creativity and the sense of fun that she brings to potentially challenging topics like climate change, environmental advocacy um, and wildlife and conservation issues. Sophie regularly works with um, another of my interviewees, Sophie, uh, Nina Constable, who you might remember from Series 2, Episode 2, if you've been here for a while. If not, go and have a listen back after this one. Um, that was another really great chat that I think you'll enjoy. So they worked together on the documentary Beavers Without Borders in 2021, and more recently in the documentary On the Edge, which is about making space for rivers in Great Britain. As I mentioned both on YouTube and they'll be in the show notes on my website. Sophie is both humble and quick-witted and it really was a joy to speak with her about her new book Forget Me Not which explores the lesser-known species threatened by climate breakdown here in the UK and amongst other things we discussed her connection with nature and doing it her way, science communication and its connection to her creativity, the importance of knowing your own strengths, Sophie's process of communicating complex topics and publications such as the State of Nature paper, the power of personal voice and letting the words flow, and if you're a writer, you'll love hearing about that. Hope as a narrative technique, which I love that idea. Individual species as a gateway to wider climate issues and how she overcomes any creative blocks and lots of other things that I think you'll be really interested in. In my eyes, Forget Me Not is a down-to-earth take on what can be very complex, not to mention scary, subjects. And I really feel this is an important book in terms of the way in which Sophie makes these issues understandable to those of us who don't necessarily know the ins and outs of how the natural world works, um, as well as to people for whom the conversation around climate breakdown and conservation is new. I think her the tone in the book, I talk about it in the in the um, conversation and, and kind of, you know, Sophie talks about why she wrote the way she did. The tone is just brilliant and it, it's like you're having a chat with a friend and she's funny and witty, uh, which is kind of a breath of fresh air, really. If you read a lot of um, nature writing, it can be quite heavy and quite dense sometimes, not all the time, obviously, but there are some books which, yeah, can be a bit heavy and it's quite nice to read about these things and hearing about it from a kind of completely different voice. It was really great. And Sophie's passion for nature and wildlife shines through. And I, I really think you'll love both the book and this conversation. So you can find Sophie on social media at Sophie Pavs, where you can find links to all of her work. Um, Forget Me Nots are available through Bloomsbury uh, via your local bookshop, bookshop.org, hive.co.uk if you're here in the UK. Um, or, of course, you can ask your local library to order it in if they don't already have it. Uh, so that you can borrow it. I do love a library. <laughs> um, 
And remember just to support your local indie bookshop, which I'm sure many of you already do. Read the book and then post that all-important review on Amazon, which is a really good way of supporting writers without having to support a multinational conglomerate. I've popped direct links to these websites on the episode page on my website, plus links to the documentary, as I've already mentioned. As always, I'm uh, on Instagram at prompted.by.nature, where I'll also be posting the writing prompt that follows this episode, at promptedxnature on Twitter, which is going all right at the moment. My brain hasn't exploded yet from Twitter, so I'm still on there. And on my website where you can find links to my Substack newsletter, my Buy Me A Coffee page if you fancy that, all the episodes of the podcast, upcoming writing classes in Brighton and Hove, which I'm really excited about starting up again, uh, plus my own writing if you fancy having a read. Um, Remember to listen to the prompt that follows this episode. uh, And that's it. Happy listening. I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Hello, my name is Sophie Pavel. I am a science communicator and author of the new book, Forget Me Not by Bloomsbury, which is out this year in June. So I just I just mentioned I've just finished the book and I really loved it. And I I want to talk about the book, but I would also really like to hear about you and you have a because re- you have a really strong connection to nature. You are very knowledgeable, or you although you very much downplay that in the book. And I was thinking how, like, like I think you say something about, like, oh, I have a piece of paper in a drawer somewhere. And I was looking at your YouTube um, show reel, and you sort of say, like, you've got a master's. And oh, my gosh, that is so old. No, I know. I saw that it was 2018, <laughs> but I thought I'd just have a Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, but, yeah, so I wondered if you could, I, I would really love to hear about your background and, and kind of how you came to be a science communicator but also how the book came about and just yeah just kind of your your journey really I suppose okay um sure so I mean this can be a long answer or a short answer but I'll try and go somewhere in the middle um so in terms of uh my journey it's kind of very normal I went to school I did a levels I went to uni I did a master's I tried to get a job um and I have always loved nature, but I've never been what I would say kind of really, really into it. And when I say into it, I mean like collecting feathers and having like random sort of nature trinkets in your room. And, you know, Chris Packham talks about his amazing feather collections and egg collections and relationships with actual wildlife that he develops. And it's very unique and I I never had that my my connection I think and still is in a way very superficial where I just get outside I enjoy it I muck around I don't put myself under pressure to know what I'm looking at and how to find something I tried that I gave it a good go Uh, I did zoology at Bristol University and I was surrounded by like-minded people which was really cool but then I sort of felt like a a pressure within that degree sometimes to um, kind of up my game with species ID and I thought god no one's ever taught me how to know birdsong or to know this bird or to know the migration patterns of this whale or any of this um and I I tried to learn all those things and didn't enjoy it I it found like it it put me in quite a sort of um negative mindset and I put myself under a lot of pressure to know these things I thought well how am I I thought how am I ever going to get a job in conservation if I don't know what bird is singing at the moment but I think just growing up and slightly maturing (laughs) I have quite an immature presence at times on social media um I think it's just made me realize that it's about so much more than that. It's more about the, how it makes you feel. Um, And for me, being in nature makes me feel calm and it makes me feel happy and creative and putting myself under pressure to um, tick boxes of species I'd seen and to get up at certain times of day and to um, challenge myself to find things um, that other people were finding and I just couldn't because it cost too much money or it, it took me away from work. Um, it, it made me unhappy and I, and I see that now. And so, um, yeah, and I think one of, the, one of the 
roots into getting that mindset was doing science communication and realizing mm. that there's a whole other avenue of connecting to nature that can actually serve a purpose. I believe in a way science communication is a public service because effectively you are the mouthpiece for science and you are making sure that whatever the public hears from science and research and factual data and factual happenings of current affairs and what's going on in the world that is so complicated and difficult to understand our job is to make sure that the public hear what they need to know and to hear it in a way that is non-accusational that is relatable easy to understand and gives a call to action i.e says okay well what can you do about it that mm -hmm. is easily achievable and i did a master's in science communication and i loved it and i genuinely would not be here without learning that um you know having that year of dipping my toe into turning science into a creative medium mm -hmm. through podcasts like this or writing or public speaking or um, science shows at, at science museums and things like this. Um, so it was a really valuable turning point for me. And believe it or not, I am a very shy person. I painfully am shy. And I think that's why writing suits me in a way, because it's quite isolating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I like seeking time out for myself and my own thoughts. And um, I'm a bit of a loner sometimes but I really enjoy that and I find I thrive in that space um, and so in a weird way science communication has suited that because I think it's given me a channel to sort of channel creativity um, and say the things that I want to say but sort of do it on my own terms mm. and I think um, it, to have that freedom is quite liberating um and yeah so it's been a, a real experimentation process after my master's I was I realized that this is what I wanted to do and I was totally shocked that I um you know the whole medium of presenting and talking to people and being around people actually really appealed to me and it was a shock to realize that I was quite good at it and all my life you know you're told especially women I think to if you if you admit that you're good at something and that you found a skill it's like oh you're a bit arrogant <laughs> you know that's do you know what I mean it's yeah, kind yeah. of a bit like it's it's so important to realize what you're good at mm -hmm. and where you're valued and where you can be useful um and I was yeah surprised to to realize that doing something that was quite public facing quite overt was something that I was quite good at Mm. um being a, a naturally sort of shy introverted person um and so I experimented with freelance science communication realized I enjoyed writing and was gathering a portfolio did loads of work experience loads of stuff for free realized I wanted to work with NGOs and environmental charities um and that's still a really important you know fundamental area of my work as I work for one at the moment and um uh, and, and then sort of trying to figure out how to finance a freelance way of life. And so working two retail jobs and doing loads of babysitting and random things along the side to try and fund my creative um, <laughs> journey and sort of catharsis um, and finding out what I wanted to do. Um, and then, yeah, tried and failed for loads of jobs that I was qualified for and that I thought I'd get and I didn't. And so there's a lot of learning along the way, a lot of resilience built, a lot of picking myself back up and, um, you know, trying again, and being persistent and being very fortunate to um, be able to pick it out at home with mum and dad while I was in that sort of flip flop state. And then... Um, yeah, got more more opportunities to write, was starting to get published, was starting to get paid for writing, which was cool. Um, and then I got approached by a publisher who wasn't Bloomsbury um, about a book opportunity. They'd seen an article I'd written about the 2019 State of Nature report. Mm -hmm. um, and then that kind of started the ball rolling um, with book stuff. And I'd, I, I would never have proposed or written or told myself that I could write a book unless it was literally not offered to me but unless someone had said oh have you ever thought about this because I never ever ever would have thought about it mm. um it just seems like such a vast terrifying 
entity I always assumed that you'd have to be a certain age and have a certain level of experience and wisdom to write a book um, but that's not necessarily the case so I uh, started the exciting world of um, working with a publisher and pitching to a publisher and then that not getting through to the original publisher and then um, seeing if Bloomsbury wanted it and then that ball rolling quite quickly and then two years down the line it's coming out <laughs> very <month>. soon <laughs> so, um, so that is a long version I'm afraid feel no, free to was, edit that <laughs> no not at all no no that was really interesting and I was thinking like when you talk about the science communication because that was something I wanted to talk to you about because I I didn't even know science communication was like a thing and until I sort of found out that you'd done a master's in it which was not mm. long ago <laughs> and uh, and I was wondering how how is it or do you have a process let's say where when you look at like a scientific document or something like for example the state of nature or even like the environmental uh, sorry the environment acts or anything like that is do you go through a process of um, breaking that down for let's say in inverted commas the lay person like the person that mm. doesn't know all of the jargon and the mm. stuff is there mm. some, like how do you go from reading that being immersed in that to then communicate it on social media or in whatever way you do it do you have a process for that because it's it's difficult to do that mm. Mm. it is difficult it really is um I think it's a mixture between trial and error and just practice 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 um, I certainly got taught a few things in the masters, but to be honest, um, in the book, when I say I, I don't really know much, it's true. I don't really know much. I really struggle to retain information and I did well in exams and I did well at uni, but only because I literally slaved away to remember stuff. And then as soon as the exam was over, poof, yeah. gone, forgot. Yeah. Um, whereas some people just remember stuff they remember facts my boyfriend annoys me so much because he can just watch something and then retain that information and regurgitate it like ages later in a really intelligent way and I'm like well I've totally forgotten but I could tell you what the Kardashians are doing at the moment <laughs> because it's so weird how we remember stuff but in terms of translating scientific fact and data into something that means something to to the busy average layperson. I think I have to translate it because otherwise I won't understand. Mm -hmm. So I think part of my process is just me personally, because I consider myself a complete lay person. Yeah, I've just got relevant degrees and I worked hard and I did well in exams, but I still am in such a process of learning. Mm -hmm. um, and I think me digesting complex scientific information um, and relaying it in a way that people get, I think it's because I have to dumb it down so much in order to understand it myself and then build it back up mm. in a way that might be entertaining or just interesting or just get the key points across. So a lot of the method that I use is pen and paper. Mm -hmm. I am a big fan of writing things down. Um, I did not do that for the book because I thought I'd have a Colin Firth moment from Love Actually and lose. <laughs> should have made copies. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, just hashing out on pen and paper, you know, getting a document up on the screen and being like, I can't be bothered to read all of this. Let's look at the abstract. Let's look at the take home. Let's look at the key things. If I scan it quickly, what am I looking at? What are the main things that jump out at me? And then it's almost just like building a story, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, why is this important? Why now? What's the significance and what can people do about it? Mm. Um, and so I've got several notepads on my, on my desk of just whenever anything comes up in the news or there's something trending on Twitter and I'm trying to understand about it myself, I just dissect it and literally rip it to shreds and pick it apart and then it's this very messy thing in a notebook and then me trying to process it in order to understand it I think just maybe comes across in a way that is more simple and easier for someone else to understand but it's also helpful to maybe have a person in mind who you're speaking to so um 
if I say like how would I describe this to my friend who works in a completely different industry to me and has no interest really in nature or protecting it how, what would she want to know mm. um, or he so that often helps um, but yeah I think especially with the book because I knew very little about any of it before I started and I was very much in a kind of state of winging it as you'll probably have noticed in chapter one it was very much like a it was kind of purposeful in a way to be very like oh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing but let's just give it a go um there was a lot of just breaking things down mm. and just saying okay I have no idea how to understand this so let's just try and make it as simple as possible um and try and pick out the fun bits you know so much research and psychology and stuff proves time and again how cognitive recall and memory retention and everything it is so much um more successful when something is relayed with humor or kind mm. of um there are useful sort of everyday analogies that help explain a difficult concept and put it translate it via something that's super relatable mm. um so so yeah there are a few sort of tools and things that are very useful uh and coming up with analogies and trying to think okay well what could this mean like if if this animal was a person how would they operate in like a social environment that we could relate to that could be super like normal and then that better maybe that helps the person understand that better so yeah but pen and paper is my go-to. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, because you you mentioned about, because I think that's what one of the things that I enjoyed most about the book was how, um, uh, first of all, I really love your use of similes. I'm a big Thanks. fan of <laughs> And you look like fantastic, fabulous. Oh, thank simile. you very much. I really love I do like a simile. So and I, I mean that we had to get rid of a lot. It was quite a simile heavy. Oh no, I don't think you can ever have too many similes. But also they made <laughs> me laugh. And I was gonna ask you about, um, I thought you do this really well. Like you have this lovely like interspersing of like the humor with the scientific information, with your own experience. And then with these like really lovely like flourishes of really descriptive writing. Like I just, just because it really stood out, like I, I highlighted, if pollen was stardust, then pollinators would be their artists, painting their celestial existence right here for us on Earth. But then you say, so very stylish. Like, <laughs> I really, I wondered how much freedom you were given in terms of like the actual tone of the book, because I think that's what really stands out about it is I've read so many nonfiction nature books about, you know, whether it's conservation or just going into like wild places or whatever it is and some not that they're saying me because obviously every writer is different but I wondered about the kind of yeah freedom that you were given in terms of the tone because it is it is it I mean obviously I don't know you very well I just know you from what I've seen on Instagram and the way that the way that you speak but you can hear your voice or I can hear your voice in there. And I wondered whether that was something you were given quite a lot of freedom with. Oh, thank you. That's really lovely feedback. Um, and lovely to hear because that was almost one of my, not one of my T's and C's, but that was something that was really important to me um, because writing a book is very hard. It's very challenging. And I'm not sure I could have, um, I'm not sure I would have felt energized throughout the whole long process had I not been given that creative freedom. And I think it's a bit of a, it was, it was definitely a risk, I think, for Bloomsbury to allow me to have that freedom because as you say, it's not a, um, it's not a normal way to write about nature and it's not a normal way to talk about climate change to be so kind of free and easy and colloquial mm. um and it's difficult to achieve that balance and it's something that the publisher who I'd um had interest from previously it just wasn't for them mm. um and I completely understand that it, I think um a lot it will be new for a lot of people and new is not necessarily well received <laughs> um but yeah I think into, you know I I I'm completely indebted to Bloomsbury and my editor for just letting me run 
Mm. And they, the text that you have read and the text that other readers will read um, is pretty much exactly how I wrote it when I submitted mm. it. There was like, obviously there was a hugely lengthy editing process and it's much tighter and it's much more polished. And we got rid of a lot and we tweaked it and we updated facts and everything. And mm-hmm. my editor sorted out my terrible punctuation. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, but essentially the story and the tone and the style of it is exactly how I pitched it and exactly mm. how I submitted it. And I'm really proud of that. And I think when I was starting writing and I was feeling quite daunted and very much imposter syndrome-y, I found it really difficult to get into the flow. And then my editor gave me some really brilliant feedback. um, And she just said, I think you're, you're trying too hard. She said, writing is so much easier if you're not trying as hard. If the words are flowing, it's going to read so much better. And so constantly through writing I had this internal dialogue going on of just me trying to piece together what on earth I was trying to write about and what on earth is happening to this species and how on earth is it going to be helped and where do we fit the contributor in when should I go back to talk about the travel um oh we haven't talked about this in ages crap where do we fit that in mm. I think just not trying so hard and just trying to th- and realizing oh you know they've they've commissioned this story but also they've commissioned me Mm. and the fact that they were actively encouraging me throughout the whole process to bring more me in there um you know it it was I feel very lucky because that allowed me that boosted me with confidence and allowed me to really explore my voice and then the subsequent chapters especially from chapter five onwards I didn't write them in order um or kind of kind of did in a way but subsequent chapters just felt so much easier to write. Like the last chapter, just a bri- compared to like the earlier chapters was just a complete joy to write and put together. Because I think by then I had found confidence in myself and my writing and my stride. Um, and so I feel so grateful to Bloomsbury for allowing me to write in the way I wanted to mm. um, and to tell the story in the way I wanted to, because I think by doing so, hopefully um readers might get a sense of how special these places and these species are um I think by just having just a person tell the story and it being a more human narrative and just if the author you know it's always lovely when you read books and you feel like you know the author yes and I really wanted it to just almost read like a chat between me and you Mm. um and that you know I'm like exasperating at some points and rejoicing in some points and struggling to get my head around stuff and I think I found um nature books frustrating in the past because I feel like I'm instantly inferior as a reader because I don't know as much Mm. and that's deliberately why I didn't include a reference list at the end because I don't you don't that's not why you're going to read the book you're going to read the book because you want a story you don't need to see how much I know or how much I've researched um I don't want to be on a I'm not in a position of authority I'm just a messenger um so yeah mm. and also I think um like you were saying about not being able to I'm not I'm not great with facts and data either I can sift through stuff and use it in whatever way but then it's gone and um but I think we remember things, or for me, definitely, I remember things so much better if it makes me laugh. And I did yeah. find myself properly laughing as I was oh. reading the book, <laughs> given that it is really about, I mean, I think you say it in the beginning, like, this is quite, it's it's about something serious. But mm-hmm. if it's all about the doom and the gloom and all the terrible things that are, let's say, in the process of happening, the the mess you just you've lost people already mm. and I I think I really appreciated that about the book is that it doesn't <clears throat> gloss over those parts it doesn't forget those parts you put that in because I had moments where I was just like oh my god it's awful and then you're like but this person's doing this and there's this area of research <laughs> happening and it's like oh okay someone's doing it's this. because I needed that too yeah. writing it I'd be there like oh my god like this is ter- <laughs> this is terrible what what is happening and so I was like right okay 
come on, we need a bit of hope in here. We need to balance this paragraph out because if we don't have hope, then readers are just going to switch off and go to something else. We don't want that because there's lots of exciting stuff to, still to come. Mm. And so it was more for my head as much as the readers um, to add light in as many ways and places as possible mm. um, and to drip feed the truth, but then to slowly kind of build it up to a bit of a crescendo at the end because I think by that point you can take it mm -hmm. I think at the beginning you know I'm sort of slightly holding your hand because I need you to hold my hand yeah. because I don't really know what I'm doing and it's all very daunting and weird mm -hmm. and, and scary um but then by the end I think by that point between us as reader and author we've learned enough together mm. to be a bit resilient to the conclusion and the what's next mm. so um yeah but no it was definitely it was it was definitely important to me to add um light amid the dark but then as you say to to not sugarcoat what's really yeah. going on because mm. that's very easy to do I think because people like like we say people don't necessarily want to hear the bad things even though yeah that's the whole reason I guess you've written the book is to I feel like it gets to a wider audience because of the like oh. the little quips you know like the little like wink wink nudge nudge stuff like I think <laughs> I think you said something about like pussy willow and then said behave or something like that <laughs> yeah I found, it was those little things that I really appreciate but it's how I would it was how I'd say it's how anyone would say to a friend if someone said pussy, yeah. willow, pussy willow you'd be like oh stop hello her. yeah yeah but it appeals to that kind of yeah that's that that well, side I of so. people I think yeah definitely yeah I did have um a couple of trusted pals read it to make sure because I didn't want it to come across I was trying hard to be funny yeah um, yeah which is also an awkward read um <laughs> and so I wanted it to just be like normal language and quite patriotic in a way that you know it's kind of how British people yeah. speak and it's sort yeah. of quite like a, an ode to that yeah um very sort of sarcastic and mm. keep calm carry on but then you know not gloss over yeah the, the whole point of the story and I was wondering um what if because I think you mentioned in the beginning of it that you know you had a long list of of things that you could include and I wondered if if you had your time, it's probably too soon to ask this, given that you've only just finished the process of writing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a bit too fresh. But um, if you could write it again or if you had a bit more time or some more pages or whatever, what would you add in there that's not in there? Oh, good question. I think if I say, let's say I had another chapter. Mm. And I could include a bonus chapter on this is totally like hypothetical, by the way, this is not <laughs> actually happening. <laughs> um, uh, if I had a bonus chapter to write about something, I would write about a plant. So mm -hmm. obviously I wrote about seagrass, which I loved, by the way, I have to say, thank I really you. loved the seagrass edition. Well, I live oh, down in Brighton, so we've got the kelp forest, which is now. Oh, of course. Yeah, living Very in. nice. Yeah, no, a lot of um, a few people really like the seagrass chapter and it's nice. It's just such a it's such a hopeful chapter it's, it's it really a real positive one yeah um but yeah if I had another chapter I would write about a plant because I have a history of shunning plants along with <laughs> millions of other people um but learning about seagrass was just like okay mm. I feel tiny and rubbish mm. not rubbish but I feel insignificant yeah. and just lowly compared to this incredible thing and just the fact that a plant has it can't move and yet it's just subjected to like the most unbelievable stresses and has to adapt and has to adapt again and again and again whilst remaining rooted to the spot can't run away it can't fly away it can't swim um and so the UK and the British Isles and around our coastlines especially um but you know inland as well of course just plants are incredible mm. and we owe them everything and so I think delving into the private life of an endangered plant would be really fun and I think it would add a bit of balance in there for mm. sure 
Mm. I was that made me think of um, something else I was thinking about actually when I was reading was I, I really liked the way that you interspersed <clears throat> the extra bits of information when you were so oh, I'm going to be able to remember the the thing now but in I think it's in the bumblebee you also hmm. talk about like wildflowers and you talk about like in each chapter it feels like you're not just talking about the thing that you're that is the focus of the chapter like the merlin or whatever you're also talking about the landscape and the way the land has been managed like I'm just thinking about hmm. like the merlin chapter you know I I really like the way that's kind of woven into it so so you're not just talking about um the one thing it's it's all of the little webs that that is affected mm. that affects it and that it affects which I suppose is mm. kind of what nature is it's just a web and but I really yeah. felt that that complexity was was kind of dealt with really well I think yeah there was like a really nice weaving in that sense um yeah I mean that uh, one of the reasons why I chose the species that I ended up choosing um was that I wanted 10 species that would not just take me to cool varied places around Britain I wanted ones that would allow me to really dive deep into all of the different weird and wacky ways that climate change can affect a species but then also ones that would allow me to go into the farming Mm. argument the Mm. marine energy development energy green energy argument um how uh how we manage our our land in general gardens wildflowers peatland grouse shooting loads of different big complex horrible hard but fascinating topics in british conservation and so i chose a species as the focus of each chapter because it's always a good hook mm-hmm. um and it's nice for the public to have something to to focus on but then I wanted it to be more than just the classic species approach to conservation where we have a flagship species and we say let's save them but we don't quite make time and effort and appreciation for how that species fits into the system and mm-hmm. ecology and us and so um yes I focus on some quirks and fun parts of each species and and try and let you know enough about them so that you kind of feel attracted to them or or not or you just feel appreciative of them and then use them as a gateway to talk about the wider issues and to zoom out and say okay what's the bigger picture what's the bigger issue Mm. um and obviously speaking to the experts and the scientists throughout really, really helped guide me there because it, it, it's just a minefield and it's it was so difficult to know where to go and different avenues to take. But again, I just used the same tactic of, okay, I've spoken about this a lot. This is quite a science heavy bit. Let's go back to a bit of travel or what happened or something funny that someone said or um, something just to, just to lighten the load a little bit. Um, but it was so interesting to be able to again have that narrative freedom to explore so many different facets of of what's going on in our relationship with nature in this country Mm. Mm. yeah and I think with I'm only saying this because I've just been reading the environment act because just something I've been doing with the conservation I think it ties in really well with that because you know there's this game-changing in averting commas environment act which obviously has things that you know the targets have just come out and it's all people are responding to them and I think it's so easy to forget that like one species affects the other species and that you know and and I think this ties in so well with that in in explaining that link when we have people who are saying oh we have to look after this in general but actually no we have to think about the species as well and the general and bring them together because everything matters Mm. and you can't neglect one and you know you can't talk about one and neglect the other because it won't work Mm. and Mm. I think that's you know it feels very um relevant I suppose of course it's relevant but I think the way that you've written it feels very relevant as well that like you know the interconnected nature Mm. of of everything that you speak about 
Yeah, it's um, I think I I use the phrase like domino effect, mm. do, domino game of dominoes, and they, you in the several chapters use a metaphor of just how this is just all one massive game of chess of everything making their move and then affecting the others. Mm. Um, and that not only helped me understand just sort of how everything every you know there's pushing and shoving and pushing and pulling all over the place um and trade-offs everywhere but but yeah you know we can't we're at a point now in the climate and nature crisis where um we're gonna have to make difficult decisions and there'll be winners and losers but then ultimately I, I think a lot of what the poor decision making that we've seen so far or the delayed decision making or the slightly slow decision making and slow response to big things is just a fundamental um ignorance of ecology mm. and um it's it's actually it, it's so it's not only fascinating to learn about but it's actually quite simple mm. you know how things fit in and slot in with each other and it is just like a puzzle mm. um and so me really challenging my knowledge of ecology and I basically had to start from scratch uh zoology degree or not I had to and, and it was speaking to people who know more than I do. And I've always loved being surrounded by people who are really knowledgeable and experts mm. in their field because you just kind of sponge up their way of thinking and their knowledge and their approach to difficult problems. Um, and so it was having, it was the luxury really and a privilege to have the time to just really dedicate to just improving my understanding of it. And then the implications of, what knowledge can do and knowledge is so exciting and the fact of just listening to science and 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 making decisions based on evidence and based on scientific data can have so much positive uh can reap so many rewards for our environment and for us mm. and we keep forgetting that you know protecting nature is gonna help us and humans mm. are a selfish species and i think um trying to constantly bring back these problems to how they'll affect us and, and just reminding people just very sort of gently that okay yeah this affects us too by the way mm. um is hopefully it's just kind of normalizing that conversation and that way of thinking and that approach to 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 nature conservation yeah and I always find it fascinating like I was um like with the people that you speak to like what people do you know, like the work that people do, it's like, wow, there's They're someone amazing. that does this, you know? Yeah, I absolutely, wow. yeah, oh, I loved, I loved um, speaking to the experts and, and lining people up and, and researching like the wackiest sort of research and, and scientists and academics and then just speaking to them for almost some spoke to for like half an hour some I spoke to for like three hours on a zoom and it was impossible to try and transcribe but conversations just took so many fascinating tangents and so I had always like a, a set set questions of, of what I wanted to ask them and always the questions were what what makes you hopeful and what are you scared of mm. and what are you worried about those were the just the two main questions I wanted to make sure I asked everybody um but then they just took the conversation in so many amazing directions. And then they're like, oh, you must speak to this person. They do this. Or, oh, please speak to my colleague. They'll, they'll want to speak to you about this. Um, and it was really exciting. And I think it was so motivating and so encouraging to actually realise that, yes, nature's in trouble. But here are some amazing people mm-hmm. of all different women, all different um, backgrounds, many of them women, um, all different ages who are doing incredible things. And his um why to be why we should be hopeful or on the other side here's why we should be worried and perhaps we should listen to the scientists because they probably know what they're talking about um and so I I really hope that people who maybe are considering a a career in in science and in whatever form that may take um might just feel inspired I came away feeling so inspired because these people and I joke a couple of times about like oh you know be quite fun to have a job with them or um <laughs> I was thinking about changing my career and going yeah. to work with these people uh, just because they're so enthusiastic and infectious and it's really um it's really lovely to to have that reminder that actually humanity can be amazing mm-hmm. um we just have to 
listen to the right people and choose how we spend our time yeah that I think that pretty much like sums it up really isn't it Mm. um so I wanted to kind of zoom out a little bit and I was wondering if you because a lot of people that kind of listen in are quite creative souls they're quite creative people Mm -hmm. like being out in nature and I was wondering maybe in the process of writing the book maybe just in general if you ever have periods where you just feel a bit blocked and how you overcome that or work through it um yeah of course I mean before I started writing a lot of people like oh you're gonna get writer's block you're gonna (laughs) get writer's block and I had I had moments of course where I was like oh you know I I can't work I can't work it out building each chapter and writing I love it because it's like problem solving Mm-hmm. You're constantly switching around the structure you're constantly changing words you're constantly finding new ways to say the same thing mm-hmm. um and I really enjoy that but obviously there are times where it's just feeling like too much effort and so in those moments where I'm finding a paragraph that I know should take me like 20 minutes to work out is taking me way too long mm-hmm. um and I've got all the information there but it's just not it's just not forming it's not happening um I go outside and I go for a walk and I remove all distraction and I go through periods of sometimes listening to like um sort of I don't know electronic music that Mm -hmm. kind of puts you in a zone and just uh, music that just goes on and on and on and on and on and can kind of help nurture a train of thought I listen to a lot of that um but then also just have moments where I just listen to absolutely nothing and I just had quiet like super 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 quiet around me quiet all day you know I'd go in the like final stages of writing where I was lucky enough to have a few weeks off of work um I'd have days where I didn't listen to any radio no podcast nothing just quiet um so that was helpful obviously it's all very subjective um I also went off social media during that time completely that was a game changer because I I was actually allowed to access my own thoughts and not feel <laughs> interrupted by everyone else's thoughts and opinions about everything mm-hmm. and so I'd say that's the must um if you want to access your sort of most creative side do that I also didn't read any non-fiction books or any books about nature because I was worried I would either feel super intimidated mm. or um that in some subconscious way they're writing might influence mine and I didn't want that I can feel inspired by them of course yeah but really I think you know you talked earlier about creative freedom with style and tone and voice and I was worried that if I distracted myself too much with books I felt inspired by I would Mm. inadvertently not be able to access the voice and tone I wanted to and so um, also sometimes when I was feeling blocky, I read tons of trashy fiction, tons of it, chick flicks, everything. Uh, I always had like two books on the go and I would just eat them up. Audiobooks, I'd go out for a, like a long hour walk just listening to a good, a good story because at the end of the day, I really wanted this book to just be a good story and for each mm. chapter to be a good story and to be able to paint these species in a way that made them feel like characters that you'd remember and you'd have your favourites and you'd have the ones you don't like, but you'd have the ones that, that kind of stuck with you, just like any any fiction book. And so um, I found that really helpful to just remind me of how to tell a story and to actually stop overthinking it and stop getting bogged down in the science because at the end of the day, you're writing a book. And people read books because they want to be told a story. Mm, mm. I love that idea of, of of just reading something completely different, so that you, in order yeah, to cross genre, yeah, yeah, no, it really helped, and it helped expose me to different ways of phrasing stuff, mm. and similes, and metaphors, and analogies, and ways of 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 um, just phrasing things that are more exciting than your traditional like reportage of climate change and Mm -hmm. natural history Mm. um you mentioned you used the word favorite and I was going to ask you or though it might be you might end up feeling like you're cheating on the other ones and I'm sure you'll be asked (laughs) this a lot or have been asked this a lot do you have a favorite in the book that you speak about it's like asking to choose your favorite child child, um (laughs) oh so I have like I definitely had ones I hated 
<laughs> when I Any was in the moment, reason? the the Merlin drove me up the wall. <laughs> I I was trying so hard to um because there's no research on it and I mentioned this in the chapter yeah there's nothing on it it was so hard to find out anything about it that wasn't just like your usual a merlin is a bird in Britain and it's blah 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 um and you had someone say, so you had someone say to you why are you why are you doing that bird? yeah I had loads of people yeah. be like uh, you know I'd, I'd like find some birdie people and be like oh hi can you help me talk about the merlin please and they'd be like mm, yeah but it's just you know why can you not do like the goshawk or something why are you doing the merlin and I was like exactly this is yeah. exactly why I'm trying to do the merlin because you a birdie person don't mm -hmm. want to hear about the merlin or you think it's too hard or it's just like not going to captivate people because it's just a tiny little bird and so when I first started building that chapter I found the merlin incredibly frustrating but actually when I got into it, it turned out to be one of the most enjoyable ones to write. I had so much fun writing that um, because they're so interesting and then being able to, okay, it, I don't want to spoil it, but um, there were elements of that trip that allowed me that, that sort of made it difficult to talk loads about the experience and loads about the trip. And so that freed up space to talk about falconry and mm how that relates to society and our history with that. And I found that really interesting and loads of fun and also to sort of um, explore why our relationship with birds of prey is so turbulent. And so I enjoyed doing that. But I think one of the species that I, um, well, oh, see, it's really hard, but at the moment, my favorite is um, the black guillemot. Mm. And I think the the tasty in Orkney, mm. um, because they're just so funny, and there was I was able to spend. You know, it was so easy to find them; they were just there, so I saw them straight away, which was lovely, because normally everything runs away from me, and um, <laughs> and they're so. I saw them in their summer plumage, and they're so striking, and they've got these bright red legs, and they just look so comical. And each bird, when you watch them, it doesn't take long to kind of decipher who's who, but they're, they're so, um, they have such personalities and you could start sort of anthropomorphizing. I mean, lots of scientists would absolutely hate me saying this, but you can attribute personal mm. human characteristics onto these birds. And I just felt so fond of them and they were just lovely. And um, the idea that their future is really bleak in a way due to various things made me really sad because you just see it and you're just like oh it's, it's so lovely like it doesn't deserve this um but then that was also one of my favorite trips as well it was just everything about it was so special um and I'm pleased that that happened to fall in the middle of the book because it's mm. a, it's a nice breather between um two quite hefty chapters <laughs> yeah and I think that that fondness that you speak of really comes through because I, I had a feeling you might say that, but I didn't know why. Oh, was, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I feel I feel a really <clears> strong <throat> emotional uh, uh, um, emotional attachment to chapter five. And I think um, I don't know why that is, but I think I think about that trip to North Ronaldsay probably every other day. Oh, maybe more. It was just so amazing um and I would wish every young person or every person to experience a solo trip along those lines mm. um, I think it was just experiencing a better ratio of people to wildlife and seeing how wildlife operates when it's got a bit more space you know mm. it's, it's more curious about people as opposed to afraid of them mm. and I found that so interesting um and just I was really taken aback by that yeah um, so I have like two more questions that I mm -hmm. kind of ask everyone, but before I do that, I wondered how you're, because the book comes out in a month and yeah. is it, I think I read on the thing, is it like the fifth, I think, is it the fifth of June? Ninth of June. Ninth of June. How yeah. are you feeling about it being out in the world? Uh, I go through cycles of being super excited and ready for it and absolutely terrified. Um, I think it, what was, what has been a very private intimate project um, is now 
being read by people and I still find it's so surreal to have people be like oh I've just finished your book and it's like, <laughs> oh no <laughs> um it kind of feels in some ways it feels a bit like those anxiety dreams where you're like giving a, a, a I don't know my anxiety dream is that I'm giving an assembly at school and I look down and I've forgotten to put a top on and I'm naked um so it kind of feels like that because it's very sort of personal and exposing and as you've read there's um a few personal elements in there and I talk about my family quite a bit and um and so yeah but no I'm really excited and I think um I was really worried that there would be a point you know that I'd constantly be like oh I want to rework that I want to rework that or I feel really unsatisfied that like it's being it's gone to print and yet I really wanted to change that um but I don't feel like that at all there's kind of nothing that I want to change I just feel really I feel like I've got really good closure on it and I think Mm. that's because of Bloomsbury and the publishers that they allowed me to have that creative freedom and that time to really make sure that I was totally happy with it and they they were totally happy with it um so yeah I'm excited and I do feel ready for it to be out um and it's it's lovely you know I've I've been so lucky to have um great feedback and and endorsements on it so far so that's obviously uh reassuring (laughs) no I I I'm not just saying it I really liked it I I just found it yeah it's just I think it's fab um so the two questions that I usually ask so the first one is is there anything that you've learned on your journey whether it's writing the book or just in life in general that you would like to pass on to people oh I think I'll say again what I said before um because that was a good summary of everything is um choose wisely who you're listening to and choose wisely how to spend your time Mm. I love that and then the last one Mm -hmm. last one is what's your hope for the future um I think just that caring for nature and action for it is not put on a pedestal but just normalized Mm. and it's just a normal part of life and I think I read um, somewhere recently that in indigenous cultures the word wild doesn't even exist because they are part of nature yeah so they don't see uh you know an us and them it's just us Mm. and so I really hope that it won't be too long until we can maybe adopt that mindset and stop separating ourselves from nature constantly and seeing it as something that we control, but just rather relaxing about it. Mm. And in doing that, we become part of nature's future and nature becomes part of our future. And it's just a normal kind of accepted part of society and it's factored into every single decision that we make. Mm. Yeah. That's perfect. I love that idea that there's no such word as wild. Yeah, I was like, okay, that is yeah. amazing. And it makes so much sense. Like, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We've so yeah. Far beyond. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. Humans came up with the word wild, which is ironic. Yeah, of course. Yeah, as they did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so before we finish, how can people connect with you? uh (laughs) they can um or just find you they can find me on probably easiest of social media Mm -hmm. um I was gonna put my email in the back of the book and my editor was like oh don't do that I was like oh okay yeah probably a good idea Um, to keep an aura of mystique around those things yeah uh I'm really bad at replying to emails these days anyway anyway (laughs) social media I am uh at Sophie Paths which is the handle that I think my flatmate came up with at uni because we're mucking around and being like, what is this Instagram thing? Let's totally get it when it was still in its early days. And so I haven't changed it because I'm a child. So it's at Sophie Paths across platforms. Um, So yeah, come say hi. But also I'll be at festivals. I will be uh, at Cheltenham Sites Festival on 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 the 11th of June and Bristol Festival of Nature on the 12th of June. And then also various bookshops and things in the Southwest and 
stuff. Um, so I will, if you follow me on social media, I will let you know about that. But come say hi. Cool. <laughs> or not. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time. And oh, no, thank I you. Really it's, always, it's such a pleasure to speak to someone who's actually read it because then you can have such a, you can have yeah. a much better conversation. And mm. I think, um, you know, it, it's, um, yeah, it's really appreciated. So, so thank you. Mm.